Sometimes we make decisions that take us down a path we don't anticipate. That's what happened to me back in 2021. Hi, I'm Sandra Bartlett. I'm the managing producer of podcasts at Canada's National Observer. That spring of 2021, I came across a story about a biologist in a remote corner of British Columbia fighting for wild salmon. The article was an excerpt from her about-to-be-published book, Not On My Watch. I bought the book, and when I turned the book's final page, I knew this story needed to be a podcast. But it took months to gather the documents, track people down, and travel to BC to talk to people. And as we know, time is money. We need your support to create more podcasts like The Salmon People. The easiest way to support us is to purchase a one-year subscription. Another powerful way to support our podcasts is to make a direct donation. Go to nationalobserver.com forward slash donate to make your contribution. Hi there, and welcome to Maxed Out. My name is Max Fawcett. I'm the lead columnist for Canada's National Observer, and I've never been more disappointed to be right than I was about my Alberta election prediction. This podcast, as you probably know by now, is about having constructive conversations about public policy issues with people I might or do disagree with. I want to step outside my silos, and I want to encourage other people to step outside of theirs. This is episode 15, Egos and Apologies in Alberta Elections. For my listeners in other parts of the country, Jeremy Farkas may not be a name you've ever heard. But if you've lived in Alberta, and especially in Calgary, he's a much more familiar personality. Either way, his story is well worth exploring. Up until October 2021, Farkas was a rising star in conservative circles, one who seemed destined to hold one of this province's bigger political jobs. He got a degree in political science at the University of Calgary, spent three years working with the political advocacy group the Manning Foundation as a senior fellow specializing in municipal governance, wrote some columns for the Calgary Herald, and ran for city council in 2017. He won, and he quickly made a name for himself as Mayor Nahid Nenshi's most visible and vocal foil. He refused the pension and transition allowance that was customary for councillors, and fought relentlessly for lower taxes and a more business-friendly environment. In 2021, he ran for mayor, and looked for a good portion of the campaign like he was going to win. And then something happened that would change his life forever. He got his butt kicked. Jyoti Gondek, a fellow city councillor, won in all 14 wards of the city, including the one that Farkas used to represent, and became Calgary's first female mayor. For finishing second, Farkas won a prize of a different sort. The ability to see who his friends really were, and who they weren't. Nenshi, his longtime rival on council, was one of the first to reach out. Many of his own supporters, on the other hand, either went silent or simply cut him loose now that he couldn't advance their interests. Farkas would go on to run a race of a different sort. He set out to hike the Pacific Crest Trail in as close to 100 days as possible in order to raise $50,000 for the big brothers and sisters of Calgary. He ended up raising more than $250,000. Earlier this year, he announced another outdoors-oriented fundraiser pledging to scale 25 peaks in 25 days to raise $25,000 for the Alex Community Health Center, with the money going towards mobile healthcare services for marginalized Calgarians. But maybe most notably, he emerged over the last few months as one of the UCP's most devastating critics. In his weekly CBC panel with Nahed Nenshi, 
Clark has repeatedly called out Danielle Smith and some of her candidates for their views on everything from LGBTQ students to vaccinated Albertans and the Remembered State Poppy. When I sat down with him recently, Farkas was clear, he's still a conservative. But as a conservative, he felt that it was his responsibility to call out Smith and the UCP for their drift away from what he saw as the conservative movement's core values. It's one that he'll surely pay a price for, and one I expect he's more than willing to pay. I wanted to have Jeremy on the podcast to explore what it means to speak out like this and what he's learned in the process. So Jeremy, welcome to Maxed Out. Thanks so much for the opportunity. So before we get into your conversion on the road to political Damascus, give me your take on the Alberta election result. What happened from your perspective? You know, I think uh, Danielle Smith really proved why she's probably Alberta, if not Canada's <laughs> greatest political survivor. I think she pulled off what uh, hardly anybody expected. She was able to stay disciplined. She was really focused. Uh, she used... Uh, her time in the political wilderness really well to be able to identify who her supporters were and to motivate them to come out in a very, 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 very close race. Like it still astounds me that the difference between a UCP majority and an NDP majority is about, I think it was 1300 votes uh, flipped that would have made the difference. So one thing that also surprised me was just how well the campaign went for the UCP. And sometimes it's political expectations. Life isn't fair. But essentially, the, the UCP's road to victory, the math was so much easier for them than it was for the NDP. And this made, this meant, say, in the debate that Danielle Smith, all she had to do really was to, to not lose while Rachel Notley had to completely win. Uh, it really surprised me as well to see how the UCP stuck to message discipline. They, they knew their polling. They saw affordability, the economy, jobs, healthcare, education, all these are super important issues. And the most important issues, whereas the NDP, I think, took a real risk by focusing on leadership and trust, an issue that most of us will grant is important, but we might rank as, say, number five, number six, or number seven. And the the UCP's message was really simple. Uh, nothing matters if you don't have a job. So it's pretty uh, impressive to see how Danielle Smith has been able to hold this party together, whether that... Uh, union stays together in the long term it remains to be seen but in many ways she eked out what is likely the the most perfect victory possible for her i mean would you say that it was a campaign that the ndp lost or a campaign that the ucp won well a win in politics is always a win right so i think danielle smith she pulled off uh what Practically, most of the pundits uh, completely wrote off, but her strategy was always hiding in plain sight. I think it was two or three days after she won the UCP leadership that she sat down with uh, Sun columnist Rick Bell, and she said her strategy was to hold on to, uh, say, 35 to 40 of those rural seats and just win, say, between 10 and 15 in Calgary. So that was what she was really focused on, and uh, they were very strategic in terms of uh, what they focused on, things like the tax cut, affordability, uh, making things cheaper for seniors. And it was just astonishing to me, though, to see that the NDP really had no answer to that. And knowing through years and years of polling that affordability, the economy had ranked so highly that they really didn't have any answer to it. And I think the moment that uh, the NDP lost the campaign was campaigning on just a really hard to defend significant tax increase on the big businesses and just in terms of the packaging how they chose to sell it it was such a massive own goal that 
This combined with how uh, Danielle was able to thread the needle on things like the arena, for example, uh, getting the Calgary City Council on side with the UCP in terms of more funding for cops, uh, a, a fancy new event center. Uh, I think that it would be fair to say that the NDP lost this, but I don't want to uh, give up giving credit where it's due to Danielle and our team. They were very thoughtful, strategic in terms of how they pulled off the win, especially in Calgary. Yeah, I think that's a fair analysis. It's interesting. You know, I've been pretty critical of the NDP's lack of an economic message, their failure to tell a story about not only their own time in government, but what their next time in government would look like, you know, especially from an economic perspective. It seems to me, and this has always been, I think, a, a challenge. It's a challenge in conservative parties right now, but it's also a challenge within the NDP, is there isn't a diversity of voices in the sort of strategic room in, in the place where calls are being made. And I think if they had had a few more liberals sitting in that room when they were deciding on that corporate tax increase, not saying they would have been successful in dissuading them, but they might have been able to be a little more effective in pointing out the risks. Because I do think within sort of the Notley universe, they didn't see the downside on the corporate tax announcement. They thought it was good policy and good politics. Has that been your experience working in politics, that there is a bit of a sort of insular groupthink that can kind of blind politicians to the, the bigger world that's out there? Yeah, absolutely. And look no further than myself. Uh, I often had at city council things, ideas that I thought were winning position, but the, the way that I, I went about it and frankly, so aggressively made things uh, uh, in hindsight, and I regret this, made things personal, I think really undermined uh, some of the arguments. And Look, there was so much to criticize Danielle on in terms of her uh, policy positions, her past comments, things like that. And I think at a certain point, this all-in strategy on the opposition research, I think it ended up undermining the NDP's ability to tell a story of their own. And look no further than my candidacy. I don't think it's a winning strategy to campaign all-in on what you're against rather than what you're for. And this will frustrate the NDP partisans because I'm sure that they have a lot of things that they would have liked to see uh, policies, strategies, plans, but to have the leader talking, say, 80% of their time about Danielle Smith in such a uh, negative way really took out all the oxygen in the room to talk about their own plans. So yeah, I think it, it was uh, an area where they decided to really to embrace that dogma, that own goal, rather, at the expense of, frankly, being pragmatic and tailoring their message to those moderate, reluctant, reluctant conservatives who simply just didn't see the NDP having any plan on the economy. Well, I'm sure you have more empathy for what Rachel Notley is going through right now than most people, because you've been where she is, being close to victory, sensing it, and then having to sort of stomach a defeat. Tell us about what happened to you in the aftermath of that defeat in the mayoral election. You've written about it. Can you walk us through what that was like? Oh, man, it's 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 awful. Like think back to the worst moment of your life. I'd lost by stunning margin. You know, all the polls had said that it was neck and neck, that every vote was going to count, but just to get your ass kicked in such a public fashion, it, it, it was tough. And, and I remember still walking up onto the stage and looking out to a sea of my disappointed supporters. And I began my concession speech and and man, when when I saw my mom begin to cry, I, I thought my life was going to be over. But, you know, my life wasn't over. The, the morning after, uh, my phone rang. And on the other line was uh, one of my mentors. And I, I asked him, well, what do I do next? And what he told me was, 
kind of taken the start since is that this wasn't going to be the first time and it wasn't going to be the last time. So get used to it, but don't take no for an answer. And he was right. You know, you know, my life wasn't over. And uh, looking back, you know, I think I deserved to lose that campaign in terms of trying to run as what I describe as a cardboard cutout of a conservative. I was very one-dimensional. I didn't have the opportunity to sort of tell my story, speak to why I wanted the privilege to be able to, to lead the city and uh, bluntly running a campaign in opposition to all of these other things. Even if you have a good point, I think if people like you in the role of opposition leader, they will be happy, more than happy to reelect you into that role. But governing is a completely different thing. But it was an incredible experience to to be able to run for mayor. You know, in the in the days after, I thought that the worst part was all of these people who I thought uh, were my friends, no longer having the time for me, not picking up the phone when I called. And looking in, in back, I, I sort of realized that for many of those individuals, it was sort of a transactional nature. Uh, they were around me because of what they thought they could get out of me or what they thought I could do for them. And the moment that uh, I was no longer useful to them, then uh, they had no interest in maintaining that friendship. What was that like finding out who your friends really were? I, I imagine, you know, even now, even recently with your comments on on the UCP on Daniel Smith, you've probably had lots of people that maybe didn't support you before saying, you know, wow, what a great job you're doing. Keep it up. And Conversely, you've probably had some other longtime friends who have probably asked you to, you know, keep it down and, ah, you know, don't criticize Danielle, like we're all on the same team. Like, how do you respond to that pressure, I suppose, to sort of conform to the team? Well, you know, I've, I've usually been my own person as far as being out there challenging the establishment and so on. So it's a little bit funny to have former supporters come out and say, well, we liked you and you were trying to speak truth to power at the City Hall establishment, but now that uh, you're at a provincial level, just fall in line, choose silence. And for me, when I saw some issues like, say, uh, a mainstream political conservative leader boycotting the poppy, disrespecting our veterans, boycotting Remembrance Day, man, could you imagine the firestorm if it was a, a Rachel Notley who were to do that, a yeah, premier? It's just, it was mind-boggling. So for some of the people who've spoken out and challenged me for somehow say, picking on Daniel Smith for somehow being too conservative, in air quotes. I, I don't think these are conservative values at all. I think there's something else entirely. And I think a lot of it's uh, been influenced by my time in the United States, crisscrossing, uh, small town America, blue counties, red counties, and just seeing how tense everything was during the uh, January 6th uh, hearings. And uh, I think it's unfortunate that uh, some modern conservatives think that they need to go down the road of the United States as if it was somehow some instruction manual in, a, in order to win elections. But I think uh, overall, I think sanity will prevail. And, you know, if Danielle Smith turns out to be somebody who can govern from as close to the center as possible to speak to the issues and uh, frankly ditch some of these uh, take back Alberta folks, then I'll be the first to fall in line and uh, support that type of vision for a province. But I, I did have some uh, significant concerns and I felt that uh, given everything that I've been able to do, the the platform that I've been able to grow, I felt that, frankly, it would be irresponsible for me not to engage in the way that I did. I think just so many people would be disappointed with me if I didn't uh, use my voice uh, when and where I could. Let's switch just very briefly to the federal scene. You know, you talked about the U.S. style politics that you experienced down there and, and how it shouldn't be seen as, a, as an instruction manual. 
it does feel like that instruction manual is being read and adhered to by the leader of the federal conservative party right now. We had him in parliament yesterday giving voice to a conspiracy theory about the prime minister and, and why he stopped teaching at a school in West Vancouver. It's been debunked, it's nonsense, but there he was kind of giving air to it. What do you make of the federal conservatives and the direction in which they're drifting? Can they be pulled back towards a more Farkas-esque version of conservatism, or are they determined to kind of find out the hard way? Yeah, and, and full disclosure, I am a member of the federal party and a board director on one of the uh, EDAs here in Calgary. Uh, there's times when, just looking back in hindsight, uh, bluntly, I'm embarrassed because I, I took what would have, would have otherwise been a winning idea, a winning position, and I pushed it so hard that it became not enough for the idea to win. I had to see the other person lose. And bluntly, if you're just a disinterested observer and uh, somebody who hasn't made their mind up on things, they're probably going to side uh, with the person who's not being an asshole in the moment, right? So for me, I, I think that there, there's nuggets of truth in terms of what uh, the CPC has been trying to push on, on, especially, say, the call for an independent inquiry into the, the foreign election interference, like the ma man, like it's... It's obvious to me how the liberals are fucking out so many files and they're making it so easy to challenge and to try to hold them to account. But it just seems like uh, the, the torquiness is not uh, required. But connecting that to what's happened in Alberta, I, I think that the federal conservatives have sensed the the type of brand of conservatism that Danielle Smith is pushing forward, uh, embracing these types of conspiracy theories, uh, going so far as to boycott Remembrance Day. I think they've realized that these are not winning positions for those moderates in Ontario and Quebec that they need to win over. And in my about 20 years of being involved in Alberta conservative politics, this is the first time I can, can recall that during a provincial election, our federal conservative leader didn't come here physically to campaign. And I think it just showed the uh, desperation, I think rightfully so, of the UCP campaign in their final days to bring out the videos from Pierre Polyev and uh, Stephen Harper to just give some reassurance to that uh, conservative base that the brand of the UCP would be able to keep Danielle Smith in check. But in terms of looking at what happened in Alberta as if it were something to emulate, no, I, I think that the federal conservative campaigners are much smarter than that. They, they, they probably know instinctually you don't get very far with, say, claiming that 75% of the public uh, are followers of Hitler by getting vaccinated in order to protect themselves and others, right? So I think I think there's limited things to learn from that. But yeah, I, I do feel like at this point in time, Canada deserves better federal conservative party, a better federal NDP, and a much better governing uh, federal liberal party. Man, it just seems like it's going to come down to who wants to lose more and who's better at losing. But I, I think that just by virtue of being the opposition leader and speaking to some of these sleepier issues, like say, housing and housing affordability, I believe that the, the federal conservatives are going to be able to eke out at least a minority win next election. And maybe part, part of that's my partisan ad, but it seems like governments just naturally defeat themselves rather than elect uh, necessarily a better alternative. No word of a lie. When I was on Ryan Jasperson's show yesterday, I said the exact same thing. I said that the next election seems like a contest between two people who want to lose and they will come down to who's better at losing. The liberal conduct in all of this foreign interference stuff, I've been critical from the very beginning. I wrote a column saying they should have a public inquiry into it. It just looks very, very bad. And you're right. It's a government with a bad case of incumbent-itis where they've been in power for too long. They're too sort of 
insular and insulated from what's happening out there. And it does feel like they don't really have the pulse anymore. And the saving grace for them is that Pierre Polyev is almost as tone deaf, if not more tone deaf. So it is sort of a pox on all their houses kind of situation. I'm wondering from your perspective, as someone who's been performative in the past, how do we trade the performance for more substance in politics? You know, is there a way that we can reorient the incentive structure so that politicians are encouraged to do fewer videos and fewer clips and more long conversations with constituents and issue experts? Or is that even possible anymore? Politics is always driven at the margins, right? The people who are, will contribute their time or um, money or otherwise to a campaign are probably not people who are happy with how things are going. It's people on the far left and the far right at the margins who want to drive that type of uh, societal change. So I think you're always going to have an element of that. Part of it also comes down to ego. Like I think uh, just uh, in terms of my own arc, like a just a quick personal story, like I never realized ego and how dangerous it could be, not just a sort of on a professional and political level, but also uh, on a uh, personal and sort of life or death level. I'm a certified wilderness first responder, and I've been able to be in so many incredible situations that are uh, split second thinking life or death, and there's no room for ego. And I think back into, I think it was May of 2022 last year, myself and a couple of other travelers on the Pacific Crest Trail, we had, we were up in the high mountains in Sierra, and we had really overestimated our own capabilities. And we had underestimated the scale of this upcoming mountain pass. And as we were going up of it, uh, weather changed and it quickly became impassable. And we were stuck together in the situation halfway up, unable to proceed, but also unable to backtrack. And I 100% admit and own that I was responsible for this. It was my ego and overconfidence that got me, not just me, but also another group of people in the situation. And I think it was for more than, I think 12 or 15 hours, we just clung to the side of this cliff at an elevation of more than something like 12,000, 15,000 feet in one of North America's most remote places. And we had to burn snow in our stoves for water. And one step or a misstep would likely mean that uh, my life would be over, plummeting down onto the jagged ice and rocks. And I think it was that situation that I really, really grokked and understood that of all threats uh, you could throw at a person, uh, th there is no greater threat than uh, your own personal ego. And the experience really, really shook me. I still feel the embarrassment. I feel the shame for bringing things so close to that uh, literal edge. And it, But on the flip side, you know, it was that failure. It was my failure that was the best teacher. And I, I resolved that it wasn't going to ever happen again. And it impacted everything that uh, we were able to do going forward. And our group was able to, to conquer 10 more of these legendary passes and Mount Whitney, the tallest peak in the continental US. And everyone uh, made it through safe. And our early mistake, my early mistake, and I own that, my mistake likely prevented future fatal ones. And I gradually regained my confidence. And I think most importantly, the trust of the people I traveled around me. So, you know, I, I one person I, uh, I know suggests uh, democratic reforms and suggest having at least a portion of, say, the councillors of the MLAs or MPs decided by sortition, which is basically just random sampling from the population. And after that type of experience, you know, I think having people brought in 
to these positions of authority who have life experience besides sort of that typical pipeline, I think is just so, would be so incredibly uh, useful to us. Well, it sounds like we need to get you to do sort of trips with new elected officials every time there's a new parliament or a new legislature, and you can just sort of take them up into the mountains and let them have their own experience and they'll, they'll come down smarter and wiser in the end or not at all. I, I just recall my times in, at city council where it's just so incredibly painful and I felt like it or the world would end if I would apologize. The world would end. My life would be over if I were to say, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. And I think that the the, the way that the partisan environment sort of rewards these types of behavior is a real turnoff for me. And, you know, somebody somewhere needs to start taking risk and try to use their independence and voice to uh, cover ground that, uh, frankly, other conservatives seem I'm going to say unwilling or unable to. It's such an interesting evolution to watch from my seat. I don't want to be Pollyannish about it, but, and I don't want to put you in the same sort of category as Danielle Smith, but I do wonder if one of the positive lessons from her election and her sort of second act in politics has been that if you apologize for things, even things that are pretty terrible, people are more forgiving than we might expect. And that maybe there is an untapped source of political power in the apology, in the admission of wrongdoing or the admission of not always being perfect. And then that's something that other politicians can aspire to. You know, I, I was advising another candidate who had made a mistake and I sort of said, what you should say is that you've made this mistake and you've learned from it and that makes you a better person in the end. And I kind of don't want politicians or elected officials who are perfect. I want ones who have made mistakes who have learned from those mistakes and have become better people as a result. I think that clearly describes you. I don't know if it describes Danielle Smith yet, but I think there might be something there in the message that sends to other politicians. What do you think? You know, I, I'm of two minds on this. I think that uh, when Danielle returned, she really owned the floor crossing. I think there's a lot of people that uh, were betrayed by her actions. Uh, basically folding the opposition party into the government and betraying those uh, volunteers, donors, even other MLAs, the voters, everybody involved. And I think when she returned, she really owned that. And I think it was brave of her. I think it took a lot of courage to look people in the eye that uh, were so disappointed in her. And she she owned that. But I think some of the challenge, though, is uh, like we, we saw from one other candidate during the election where it was sort of a blanket apology. It was, I've said a lot of things, I've done a lot of things, I'm sorry for all of it, and don't hold it against me. It's sort of like a, it's sort of like the equivalent of like declaring bankruptcy, none of your debtors can come after you, right? For it to matter and for it to count, I think you sort of need to identify the specific thing. You need to talk about uh, what it is that you're sorry about, and then you need to identify maybe how you've evolved, right? So I think uh, to say, what really bothered me was uh, sort of some of her remarks around veterans, around Remembrance Day, around the poppy. It really wasn't clear to me for uh, Premier Smith that she really understood the damage that was done as a result of that. And I don't think that she sort of expressed regret. I'm sorry if you were offended kind of apology, which I don't think is, I don't think that that passes muster with folks. But, you know, I think that uh, a lot of people would recognize that we're not looking for perfection from our politicians. And for anybody who's met uh, Daniel Smith up and close and personal, you know that she's not a mean person. She's not intentionally trying to screw anybody over. She she has certain advisors, certain things that she's 
done and listened to, and that's informed her worldview. So even with, say, Jennifer uh, Johnson, the Pinocchio Lacombe, sadly, MLA-elect, uh, I thought her views basically describing transgender children as human waste, as literal shit, uh, that is just, it's it's beyond the pale. But I want to live in a world where somebody, perhaps if somebody like that puts in the work and the effort and can actually genuinely learn and grow and identify the damage that they've done by those remarks and work to uh, make amends. I want to live in a world where there's there's a path to something better for a person like that because the only alternative is, well, if we don't give them a chance, they're just going to double down on bullshit like this and they're going to continue to fester, right? So it's so much, it's so much harder to forgive. Uh, we don't have to forget, but I think that you have to give people the room to grow and whether they choose to use it or not, I think is up to them. Yeah, I, I want to live in that world too, where certainly an apology is not going to come close to undoing the damage that a comment like that makes. But if you foreclose the possibility of being able to learn and atone, you're really sort of, number one, writing off a big portion of the population on a bunch of different issues, and you're giving them an incentive to think worse things and say worse things. To me, at the end of the day, the goal is to bring as many people as possible with us on this journey, not to leave as many people behind. So I would love to live in that world. I'm not sure we're there yet, but I do appreciate people like you trying to make it happen. You know, you've said that you're not going to run for office anytime soon. I accept that. I don't blame you. It doesn't seem like a lot of fun right now. But what is next for Jeremy Farkas? If you're asking me if I would run again, absolutely. I would run again in a heartbeat, but I think I have to bring more to the table. I have to have more to offer people. My next project is to challenge the speed record for crossing Canada on foot from ocean to ocean. And there's so many other things I want to be able to do with my life, but I'm always going to have sort of that love for politics, specifically municipal, because I think it's the level of government that gets the least attention, but it makes the most impact. But there's other ways that I can help in terms of my commentator stuff, mentorship, uh, getting involved with uh, campaigns where I believe in the candidate and they're there and believe in people that I believe are there to be part of the uh, solution rather than part of the problem. Well, I appreciate your journey. I appreciate your thoughtfulness and, and I appreciate you sharing it with us here on the podcast. So uh, thanks for coming on. Beauty, thanks again for the opportunity. Thanks again to Jeremy for the time and talk. I think the lessons here speak for themselves and I only wish more politicians of all partisan stripes were willing to learn them. I suspect there's probably a book coming here from Jeremy in the near future, and it sounds like it would be well worth the read. About the so-called poop cookie candidate, Jennifer Johnston in Pinoca, I understand that it's not my place to decide if she's done enough to atone for her comments, since her comments don't put me in any personal danger. Should she resign her seat? I think so. Should she be allowed back into the UCP's caucus? Absolutely not. But her election, and to a lesser extent the UCP's re-election as government, speaks to a rather depressing reality. If something doesn't affect us, we tend to discount it far more heavily than we probably should. Empathy is hard, in other words, while selfishness is easy. That's not unique to Alberta, of course. It's true across the country, around the world, and wherever politics are practiced. But if progressives want to win more elections, and they should, they need to always bear this in mind. Playing to our highest ideals is a good and important thing, and it's one progressives do better than their peers. 
but attending to our more basic needs, whether that's for shelter, employment, or financial opportunity, is table stakes in any democratic election. Without it, those worthy ideals tend to fall by the wayside. Just a reminder that we need your help to continue our podcasts. Every donation helps. And please rate us a five on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. We want everyone to find us. Maxed Out is produced by Canada's National Observer. Our managing producer for podcasts is Sandra Bartlett. Associate producer, Zara Kozema. Our publisher is Linda Solomon-Wood. Next week is Hot Politics with David Mackay. And I'm Max Fawcett. I'll see you in two weeks.